the story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man, but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes, when every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were, only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does, and it won't stop, not until you come home, back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming of age story, Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Size, The Fallen Boys, and A Place for Sinners. Out now. Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers writers, and creators. Welcome to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brent LaFaro. Say hi, Brent. Hello, everybody. And today we are joined by the creator of Repairman Jack, amongst uh, honestly too many books <laughs> to name at this point. Uh, F. Paul Wilson. Say hi, Paul. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. I don't know if anyone said this to you, but... Uh, I love your voice. It feels like it would be like uh, of the uh, Rod Sterling um, sort of uh, vein where you could be the guy that introduces stories or movies and such. Did you do anything like that on the sci-fi channel? I, I don't know all the stuff you did for that channel. I'm, I've always thought my voice was too nasal. When I hear it, I really don't like it. You know, I got the, uh, the schnoz here <laughs> and uh, I think that that adds to the nasal resonance, but no, I've never been happy about my voice. No. Oh, and uh, Brennan kindly corrected me. Uh, Sterling. I said Sterling. Um, thinking of someone else, apparently. Um, let's just dive into our baseline question. What got you into horror? Uh, I think, I've said this before, but I think we're wired for certain things. And and, and I've been wired for horror. Um I had the most prosaic upbringing, you know, with, you know, an immigrant father who did well, a stable family, one brother, one sister, 
one dog, two cats. Um, and I was, I just, it was just as normal as can be. And then the trailer for the beast from 20,000 fathoms came on TV and I was like glued to the TV. I had to see that movie. I fell in love with that monster just from the trailer. And I would actually sit there and watch TV and flip through the three or four channels we had then looking for that trailer to play again. Um, and so I made my, my folks' life miserable until they took me to see it. Um, so I didn't really choose it. You know, it sort of chose me. I mean, and that's just, I mean, I used to buy EC Comics as a kid, and if it had a rocket ship and a dinosaur on it, I'm there. You know, so I mean, it was one of those things. Well, it makes sense because uh, you got into sci-fi and, and, uh, and horror, and uh, something really cool. This is more for the listeners that aren't aware that you grew up in Jersey City, which is only 15 minutes away from another very uh, well-known, uh, mainly known for his fantasy now, but also um, sci-fi and horror author. Also, you and him, George R. R. Martin, uh, wrote in Analog Magazine back in the 70s. Um, it, is there, I know there's more North Jersey writers, but, and this is a weird segue, but um, Analog Magazine, I know that was your first sale. But how long were you writing before that? And how many times were you rejected, if you remember the exact amount? Oh, many. I, was, I wrote for years. <laughs> um, I would say, oh, at least a dozen uh, rejections, uh, short story rejections, before he finally wrote to me, Camp wrote to me and told me why he was rejecting it. And there were more rejections after that. And then finally, he bought Ratman, um, which was my first sale. And uh, it wasn't my first publication, but it was my first sale. Nice. Now, 12, 12 is, uh, to, to me, To me, I, th- I think I, I threw way more than 12 out there before I got my first acceptance. And, it, you know, it feels good, whether it's 12 or 24 or 150. No, I... I have to know, we, you, you had that uh, preview show up on TV and it just kind of caught your attention. When you finally got to go see the movie, did it live up to expectations? Absolutely. I was, I was mesmerized. Uh, we went to a drive-in because it was during the polio years and it was the summer. And movie theaters were a kid's called polio. And um, you know, my folks said, do you want to wind up in an iron lung? I said, yeah, if I can see that movie, I'll risk it. <laughs> um, so my father took me and my brother to uh, the Tons River Drive-In. And I was sitting there with a, just looking through that windshield at, at this monster. And I, I really felt sorry for it at the end when it died inside the uh, roller coaster. Um, I, you know... Harry ha- Harry Harryhausen did such a great job with that monster that I I, I just believed it was real. Yeah, Harryhausen. There's just there's something about his work that even you know you can look at today and 
you know, it, 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 it's it's very, very different than the CGI we're kind of beaten over the head with today. But there's something very authentic about it, um, and which is which is funny to say when it has that kind of almost like claymation stop motion appeal to it a lot of the time. But just it, you just feel like you're never going to see anything like that again. Well, the thing is, when, when those stop motion uh, monsters first appear, they look, you can see the jerky movements, but then your mind adjusts and smooths it out. And by the time that thing was walking through lower Manhattan, yeah, it was fluid to me. And when it was dying and it curled in a circle, almost like a cat and laid down and died. I mean, I just had a lump in my throat and I just saying, you know, that poor thing, it, it didn't ask to be here. You know, it was out of its time, and we killed it. And I, I, I was on its side, <laughs> not humans. I was on the monster's side. I'm, I'm curious that, um, you know, you said with the stop motion, you know, your, your imagination almost kind of fills in the blanks and takes over um, and, you know, kind of helps the filmmakers do their job. Do you think that with today's movies where they can pretty much make anything look like anything that we've lost some of our imagination? Well, you know, it, it wasn't so much imagination. I mean, I, 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 I like good CGI. I mean, um, I've always said that, I mean, way back when, I think it was 1984, 1985, uh, Roger Corman's uh, uh, company, uh, optioned the tomb. And um, I really had trepidation about that. Um, it's always great, you know, to have Roger Corman want to make your film. But, <laughs> yep. Um, it's also the fact that he's, you know, he's like the king of cheese. And I could see some guy in a rubber suit playing, you know, the Rikashi. <laughs> and, you know, the line between horror and hilarity is very narrow. And it could look stupid so easily. Um, you know, fortunately, they had a terrible screenplay. Um, and somebody stole the title. And they just gave up on it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was sort of relieved. I walked away with the option money and, you know, okay, fine. Um, but... I was kind of relieved because I, I knew in the future, I didn't know about CGI then, but I knew in the future that, um, well, I had seen Star Wars and I knew that, um, you know, computer animation was the way to go. Jurassic Park hadn't come out yet, which really changed the whole thing. But um, I knew it was heading that, I could just see it heading that way. And I'm saying in the future, you know, we'll be able to do this. And they haven't done it. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> well, I, I'm just thinking, like you know, the, with the 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 idea of filming a scene with the Rakashi in the in the in the ship hold. Uh, that if you get that right, like what a chilling scene that could be. And if you get that wrong, um, it just it, it almost kind of steers the atmosphere of the movie and not not in the right way. Uh, that's got to be such a strange feeling as a creator to almost kind of have that trepidation where you're excited 
for the possibility to some for someone to take uh, one of your characters, one of your very beloved characters, and you know the first story that you put them in. But also, you know, what if they do get that? You know, what 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 if they do kind of get yeah. the tone just completely mismatched? You know, it's um, I learned that with the keep the hard way that when you sign away the rights, the movie rights, they can do anything they damn well please with it. You know, it's like selling your house. It's your beloved house. You built it, but you know now you've got to downsize and move out. And as soon as you move out, they they paint it hot pink, and you say that's not my house. <laughs> you're right. It's not your house. It's their house. Yeah. And so um, they can do whatever they want with it. I mean, if you were J.K. Rowling and you've got six of the biggest you know production companies in the world bidding on it yeah you can start naming terms but when repairman jack say i mean when the, the key was sold before the movie rights were sold before we sold the publication rights um and you know we were happy with what it was a good deal um and you know, any other director might have made a you know a good movie out of it. You know, but Michael Mann decided he wanted to make a Michael Mann movie with with the title of my book on it. So, that's, that's, but 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 I got the rights back. We're, we're negotiating a new uh, option with uh, people who are going to do a really good job on it. That's excellent. That's really cool to hear. I did like how you, um, I think it's your website, you refer to uh, it as visually striking and otherwise incomprehensible. <laughs> well, you know, that, that it, is, it is. I mean, most people didn't know. I mean, I remember walking out of the screening and I was saying to my wife, I was saying, well, maybe it'll be a cult film. You know, people will appreciate, you know, the, the younger generation will think it's cool. And, you know, this young couple is in front of us and he's saying, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> I think, oh, you know, we're screwed. Um, but <laughs> on the upside, the movie tie-in edition sold like a quarter of a million copies because everybody who saw it went out and bought the book and tried to figure out what the hell was going on. So, <laughs> you know. You know, I, uh, lining to every cloud, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm very much of the mindset that, you know, the yes, it would be nice if my favorite books were turned into a, a page by page adaptation, you know, movie wise. But at the end of the day, even if even if it doesn't, even if it's incomprehensible, mm -hmm. the book is still on the shelf. You know, the story still exists in the way it was originally told. Yeah, that was you know, they used to ask Raymond Chandler, so, well, you know, how do you feel about what they did to your book? He said, the book's up there on the shelf. They yeah. didn't do anything to it. Yeah. So that's where you have to look at it. Um, yep. and, and still, The Keep is still my number one uh, bestseller on my backlist. That's pretty cool. Uh, you were mentioning how he just, uh, Michael Mann just wanted to use the title. Um, and that reminded me of Max Brooks. World War Z, uh, at the book and the movie have nothing to do with each other. They're just the same title. And and as a creator, I, I mean, I, I would <clears throat> probably be pretty upset about that. Um, 
what are if you i know you're in negotiations i can't talk tonight uh but what are your expectations if you can talk about any with your work coming uh to i don't know if it's a silver screen or if it's a streaming service like h something like hbo or netflix i'm not sure which but what what do you expect well i mean from these people and if i said the names you'd recognize them immediately I know that I trust them. I know they're going to do a good job. That's great. Uh, whether it's a feature film or streaming, I don't think they know yet. Um, but uh, Alfred just signed uh, option on Sims. Oh. Uh, I don't know how, you know, now nowadays with motion capture, that, that's very possible to do that. That. Um, uh, but they don't know, you know, in the contract they have, you know, this much for a feature film, this much for streaming. So they don't even know what they're they're going to wind up doing. <laughs> um, and that's I mean, that's the way, you know, you, you, you go for the, the best venue uh, that, that that you can get. Um, I would lo- I mean, Sims has enough for. I think a good six hour stream, they'll probably stretch it out. I mean. Most of these streaming things are just so attenuated that uh, it's it's ridiculous. But they seem to think they've got to have so many hours out there to make it worthwhile, even though the you know the story isn't there you know for that much time. Yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of like how they turn the Hobbit into a a trilogy. <laughs> it doesn't make any damn sense. I didn't, I didn't even watch it, and when I heard it was a trilogy. Um, it just uh, that's going to be so attenuated that uh, yeah, I I really liked Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, I, I I didn't think there was much waste in in, in that. Um, and I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, Sarah Penborough's uh, Behind Her Eyes was way stretched out. I mean, that that I is seen a, that. That's a great story with a killer ending. I mean, that's got it's one of those endings that say, What? What? And, um, but it just, you know, it took six hours to get there. It's not a six hour movie. Um, but you know, they they just, they just stretch it out. Um, you you brought up Sims and Brennan, jump in if you want to, after man. Uh, Sims. It covers the human Z and I, I have not heard up until, um, up until that book that that was a thing but it i looked into it and it goes back to like the 20s um with that hypothetical species what made you want to write about that it was like many things that uh the way stories start i was just reading a thing in new york times and it said that chimps share 98.8 percent of our human DNA. I'm saying, holy crap, I didn't realize that. <laughs> I didn't know it's that much either. <laughs> and I was saying, so what if it's 99.6? What have we got? And I was thinking, then I was, you know, then there's the other thing where you can copyright a genome. I say, well, there's money to be made there. Yeah. If you, if you get it where to the point where they can speak and understand language, then you've got yourself a slave species. And I said, hmm, thriller, um, you know, science thriller. And then, you know, it was on the back burner. And then 
Richard Chismar asked me if uh, you know, I, I could do a novella for a cemetery. And I said, well, I got this idea for these, you know, hybrid chimps. Um, and he said, well, do it. I, and I, I, I started out in the first novella and I got to, four, you know, I said it's about 40,000 words and I got to 40,000 words. I said, I'm not even scratching the surface here. <laughs> I said, I can't do it. He said, well, do one novella after another. We'll publish them as you do them until you, the story's done. So it wound up to be, I think, five or maybe six. I'm not sure. And then it all went into one book. So I, I know it's nothing like it, but maybe it's just my dumbass brain. But were you at any point thinking about Planet of the Apes, the original film, uh, when you came into that? Because, I mean, maybe I'm stretching it, but we are talking about uh, the human race being slaves in that one. But um, chimps, uh, apes, um, did that ever cross your mind? No, I mean, I wanted to short circuit that right away. And that um, because I knew that would be the first thing people would say. Okay, and, and so I, I, I said, you know, well, you know, what about a revolt? And I said, no, there, that's bred out of them. I mean, when you're, when you, when you can control genes like that, you can breed that. You can, you know, you could keep. I should say, bred out of them. It's just not there. You mm. just take that, and you make them very docile, and um, you make them very compliant, and so that um, rebellion is not in the cards. Um, but you know, it starts off with that one little, you know, uh, men's room attendant coming up to Patrick, who's an attorney, and saying, You know, we'd like to start a union. And so, I mean, that's not rebellion, but and it says it is rebellion, but it's not violent, you know, they're not looking to break out, but they're trying to better themselves. and. He says it's ridiculous, and but then he gets pissed off at, at the club. It's a country club. He gets pissed off at the club. And he says, "Well, God damn it! You know, let me see what I can do." And um, I talked to a labor relations return attorney and says, "How can I make this work in court?" And he and he says, "You know, how can I get them declared human?" He said, "You can't," but is you can maybe have them declared persons. And there's a difference. Oh, yeah. That person does not cover only humans. That's a good point. And so that's what I did. And um, the, the club thought they had a lock because um, this was a very you know conservative judge. And uh, you know he, he wasn't going to tolerate any of this. But then they, he surprised them and said, you know, um, well, you know, I go by the law, and the law doesn't say there's anything that these these things can't be human. They can't be persons, and so now everything goes, everything starts to change. And um, I had myself a story. So I mean, that's think, the way these work out. Just one line in the Times. You know, that's, yeah, I mean, real life spawns a lot of great stuff. Going back to Game of Thrones, I mean, George R. R. Martin's a huge fan of. Of your uh, European history, and I know the the uh, War of the Roses was what spawned a lot of the Game of Thrones uh, timeline. But um, I want to talk, jump back about the possibility of not only this, but I was watching this video of a European-based uh, company that they have these prosthetics. They're real. Um, 
realistic looking and it's for legs, arms, hands, and feet. And the way they, they work is that part of uh, the end of the prosthetic connects to something that ends up connected to your brain. So your brain's a controller. And I know that we're working on, we have 3d printers and I have, I, I like looking at near futuristic stuff um, just for fun. And there was talks of um, organs to be printed in the near, in our lifetime. I don't think it's impossible to think that. I mean, they are smart. You could even say about dolphins or pigs. Do you think it's realistic to say that we could explore that being our reality one day, that these fake chimps or other species could end up uh, being what your book is? Oh, I mean... The ethical the ethical questions are, are huge. Yeah. Um, I mean, but but they're already getting organs out of out of pigs. Um and I, I think that's going to continue because um I mean that's that's been you know in the making for a long, long time of uh uh uh, hybrid, you know, uh, transgenic organs um, with with no um, histo incompatibilities, which allows for easier, you know, transplants and and you know, less you know fighting rejection. Um, but I think if you could, and I don't think it's you know three D printing of an organ. Uh, ah, I don't think it's in the near future, but I certainly think it's in the future. Um, I mean, the kidney is so complex. When you look at the nephron and and how complex it is and how many of them there are in a kidney, um, you have to say, well, you know, that's one hell of a 3D printing job. Um, but I don't think it's impossible. Yeah, I mean... I don't know what the percentage is, but I have heard that we only know so much of how our brain could actually, um, the, the capacity of it, the power behind our brain. Um, and that, that kind of, that the brain itself kind of scares me. I mean, I feel like there's so much like the human race, we always think we know so much mm-hmm. and, and then you find out more and it's like, well, we, we knew pretty much nothing <laughs> about this topic. Um, the, you know, the thing is, I mean, one of the things, you know, talk about, you know, the human race, uh, how many other races are there like, like us out there? Um, it's a, uh, you know, it's looking like there are fewer and fewer than we thought. Really? Um, and there are, cause there are so many hurdles to get through. I mean, sure, there's a lot of planets out there. Um, I mean, the estimates for our galaxy alone are between, you know, they go between 100 million and 400 million stars. Hmm. Uh, Maybe, sorry, 100 billion and 400 billion stars. Um, Because, you know, then comes the question, what is a star? Is a brown dwarf a star? Or, you know, but the thing is, most of the stars are, you know, uh, either red giants or red dwarfs, and you just can't have a a a planet 
hospitable to life around one of them because they're so unstable. Mm-hmm. You know, they flare and then they go down and then they flare and they go down. So, um, you know, how many how many planets are in a Goldilocks zone? You know, rocky planets like ours in a in a Goldilocks zone around a stable like yellow star like we have. Hmm. Um, how many of them are there? And the thing is, you've got to have an iron core because the iron core has to be liquid and it has to keep moving in there and create the mag- magnetosphere, which keeps all that uh, horrendous radiation from the star from hitting us and frying our DNA. So, I mean, there's so many variables. And, and I mean, here, here's something that, that blew my mind. You know, you know what a mitochondria is? Mitochondria. Uh, yeah. The powerhouse of the cell, sir. Exactly what it's called. It doesn't have the same DNA as the cell. And the the supposition is, and it's 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 been accepted pretty much, is that that is a bacterium that was ingested but not digested, hmm. and this emb- it formed this endosymbiosis where it produces this ATP, which allows eukaryotic cells to do all these other things and start to expand and and multiply and uh how the hell does that happen you know um that has to be a a a cosmic accident that that it didn't it ingested the bacterium didn't digest it so it became part of the cell i mean that's that to me is amazing absolutely uh it's something along those lines of complexities beyond like kind of what we what some of us might know or see is uh work at a wastewater treatment plant and the laboratory you can if you look inside the microscope it's a whole (laughs) cellular world and it's it's crazy it's the things that allow us to uh do what we do but we can't see it meaning uh clean the water um and it shoots where i i'm in i'm right near lang city uh it shoots out uh, into the atlantic ocean um but without those microscopic creatures bugs you know we can't we can't break it break down the product um i don't don't know if you would how you would without them but it's just really it's it's bizarre man like you're talking about the cosmic uh side of things i'm talking about the microscopic side of things and yeah i i don't know what the number would be but it does seem like it's kind of like a a luck a one in a million sort of deal or, or maybe an nth of that to make all this happen. Well, there's a formula out there that, that says that, you know, um, and it, it's, it's a really intimidating formula. I forgot the, the name of it, um, but you plug everything in and there's you know, like, there's like 20 possibility of 20 other civilizations that reached our level. Um, and it's, um, but that works well with cosmic horror. Because yeah. you always say, well, why is Earth so important? Why are humans so important? You know, why do they spend... Well, now when you think of it that way, you know, there aren't that many sentient, sapient races that they can toy with. <laughs> so we suddenly become like, oh, hey, there's an ad farm. <laughs> Let's play. So That's why Cthulhu stays here. <laughs> There's just not that many ant farms, so I'm going to play with this one. <laughs> That's right, yeah. This is mine. This is mine. 
do you like uh do you, by a chance do you like Neil deGrasse Tyson? He's my favorite astrophysicist. What who? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um yes, I do. Um I I I heard him talk about, you know, someone said, What about UFOs? And he did the 10 minutes that was just brilliant. He um he blows my mind every time he talks. But the thing that you know, I, I really recently read a quote by him, I, I and it, it bothered me. You know, he said something something to the effect that you know, it doesn't matter what you think, or you know, or science doesn't care what you think or believe. Uh, it remains true, or it remain. You know, it, it doesn't change. Um, I wish I could, you know, but the thing was, you know, in my experience, science isn't always to be trusted. Um, Science is a process. It is not a bunch of facts. So science is how you get to the truth. Science isn't necessarily the truth. Science is on the way to the truth. Sometimes, you know, it's never, you know, when they say the science is settled, then you know you're talking to an asshole because science <laughs> science is you know it's just waiting for the next question or the next change in data or the next improvement in instruments i mean ptolemy had a a model of a geocentric universe with seven rings around it it was geocentric and it worked for 1,500 years. People used it successfully for 1,500 years until Galileo and Copernicus came along with better instruments. They could see better than Ptolemy ever could back when, you know, at the, you know, when Christ was born or before. Um, so they could see better and they said, no, it's actually, you know, solar centric. And, um, you know, the church shut them down and stuff like that, but they finally they had to agree. But the thing is, they had better equipment. And like when I was researching Sims, I learned genetics in medical school. Mm. That's in the 70s. When I was researching Sims around 2002, I had to learn everything again. Because <laughs> everything had changed. Everything I had been taught in the 70s was pretty much said, it's wrong. And um, and you know, there's all this junk, they call it junk DNA, but it's really non-coding DNA. But there's all this other stuff. They found DNA from daffodils in us and from butterflies. I mean, it's so obvious that, you know, the evolution was going on. But the thing is, we never knew any of this stuff hmm. back when I was learning it. So I had to, you know, have to give myself a course again. But the thing is, that was the science at the time, and that was accepted. But the thing is, sorry, but we now know that it's much more complicated than that. So, you know, it's only fifty years. Yeah. So don't 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 trust you know science one hundred percent. Just say that this is our best idea of what's going on with the tools we have at the time, and. The thing not the thing to really avoid is the priest scientists, <laughs> uh, because uh, they 
you know, <laughs> they're human just like us. They have agendas just like us. Yeah. And science, you know, the data can be skewed. And, you know, a chaos theory has shown that, you know, that, that complex systems are very sensitive to initial conditions. And so, you know, when, when they start giving you these predictions about what it's going to be like in 2050, that's bullshit. It, it may be true, but most likely it is not because, you know, their initial conditions here are, they can't predict where a hurricane's going to go. Right. I was going to say, just look at the weather channel to. Yeah. <laughs> they can't predict where a hurricane's going to go. And that's all chaos theory that, you know, little changes in in the stuff you put in the beginning of 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 the uh the program you know can go this way and they can go that way depending on sometimes you know the the the, the fifth or sixth decimal point so um and, and the original uh founder of chaos theory that's what he found out when he was working running a weather program he just cut down a few thousands off the formula and he got a completely different prediction that is so, chaotic <laughs> um sorry to kill that uh no I, you know, I was just thinking <laughs> I, I i think that's so incredibly true is that i can understand wanting to present science as something that's fixed that's so based on like you know cement fact but it's an evolving process and i think you need look no further than the last two years uh and just the way that we started studying this virus and, you know, rolling out different measures, whether it was just keeping distance and then adding masks and then, you know, um, uh, vaccines. And, you know, you've got the, the, you got the detractors that are saying, Oh, I thought we were supposed to be fine if we just stay away from people. Oh, I thought masks were the be all end all, but it's that constant evolution. It's like, they, you know, we, we, we weren't at a point where we knew, everything we're we're constantly learning more because we're constantly looking at it from different perspectives and and different lenses <clears throat> and you know trying to understand better as opposed getting, to just creating a cement idea and working towards that you're getting more data and and the more as more data comes in you have scientists are very happy to change and we say, oh, okay, that's the way it is. All right, now we gotta look at it this way. It's <laughs> just like uh, anthropology. They find a, a new species that's a million years older than what we thought was the oldest species. And, say, and do they say, no, that's wrong? No, the science is settled. No, they don't say, they say, okay, now we have to go make a new chart and, and figure out uh, and add this into it. I mean, so in coronavirus, I mean, there had been some research on it earlier, but nobody, nobody was an expert on it. And, uh, and we learned as, as we went along, you know, the spike proteins and everything, it was a, uh, it was a, it was a constant learning process. I mean, I never really got mad at anybody for being wrong. Because you know they were probably telling us the best they knew at the time, um, and, and sometimes it was very damaging some of some of their solutions. But they thought probably thought that that was you know the way the way to solve the problem. So I mean, 
uh, I'll, I'll give somebody the benefit of the doubt, but you know, the, the, there were some, you know, high priests that were uh, developed during that time, which you know you got to take with a grain of salt. They're not; uh, they're just uh, spewing out and regurgitating what they have gotten from other researchers. So, yeah, definitely, uh, you know what? This is a good segue to jump into your one of your books, Virgin. Um, I would really like to know, and I promise I won't ask about any other book in this way, but how did you come to write that one? Because for me growing up as a Roman Catholic, I'll write about anything, but I gotta be honest in the back of my mind, I'd be like, Jesus is watching. Don't F this up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I think one of the things that triggered it was that I was, you know, the millennium, the millennium was coming. And I was, you know, someone wanted me to write, someone, you know, via my agent, you know, wanted me to write a a millennial series of novels and put out one a month in in the last year of, you know, before the millennium. And, you know, start writing them years before. Um, And I started researching and 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 I determined that well, really, Christ was probably born in four years before everybody thinks he did. He was, mm. and so that the the true you know millennium would be nineteen ninety six, and I'm saying that's interesting. Um, and then I thought, well, how can I? Anyway, I outlined something and they didn't like it, and I didn't like it. And I was glad that they didn't use it. Um, because I didn't want to write all those books <laughs> um, unless they were offering me a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it did trigger the thing, and I was saying, you know, Mary was supposed to have been assumed into heaven, body, you know, and so. And I'm saying uh, it's obvious reasons for that that so people didn't go hunting for her body for relics, you know, and start you know tearing it apart, and you know. Um, I said, but, you know, what if she, you know, let's just say that, you know, she didn't. You know, there was a Mary. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was raised a Catholic. But by the time I was 18, I, the Jesuits had taught me how to question my way out of it. Um, that's so Sorry I, to cut you off, but that sound was perfect if you were to continue. It would have sounded like a censorship. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a, somebody's computer. Um <laughs> Email, you got mail. Um, so I was just saying, so the Christians would have hidden her body. Um, and I'm saying, and in my mind, I was saying, who would you get to guard it like forever? And I was thinking, oh, you know, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Judas. Because if you go by the mythology, the resur- you know, the, the resurrection and the salvation of humanity never would have taken place if he hadn't betrayed Christ. Oh man, that I never thought. <laughs> Jesus so Christ, I, I never thought of that. <laughs> yes. So he somehow he's he's he got screwed. <laughs> you know? He sort of had to do this. 
it was necessary for him to do this and he got screwed yeah and and so it was a betrayal but the thing is it was necessary and he didn't hang himself he got stuck with guarding the body and so i said oh what a setup and then someone steals the body and he's got to get it back and i just said okay I got to do this. Yeah, I've got to write this book. So, um, so you know that. So that's that's where it came from. Uh, but I say I just had that soft spot in my head for Judas. He's a, he was, he was a tool, you know, and he got used, and he got screwed. And I'm just saying, well, let's see if I can get him some some redemption here. Yeah, it would be pretty interesting. Uh to hear other sides of the story um i mean all i ever knew about him was that he betrayed jesus and i would have really found it interesting to hear a little bit of backstory about that and uh, i don't know there's just like kind of one side to the story it's black and white good and evil and that's just not real life then or now you know i mean mary might have been a little bit of a drinker i don't know you know (laughs) who knows (laughs) <laughs> Who knows? Um, Brennan, do you have anything to add to this, sir? Any more, any more blasts for me to add? No, I, I think that's an incredibly interesting way to look at it because we do paint Judas as the villain and it's just, he, he's a patsy, you know, it's a, we, we know you're going to betray us. You're preordained to do it. You pretty much essentially, uh, you have been fated to do this. Do you really have any, um, the idea of, you know, did he have the, the, the agency really, or was it just something that was always going to happen? Um, it's such an interesting question to look at in regards to the entire mythology. And I'm pretty much just repeating what you just said. So I'm going to take <laughs> us in a new direction. Um, we mentioned earlier that, you know, your first sale was in 1970 to analog. And at the time you were in med school and I, I mean, to me, all I can think is what dedication to be in med school and still writing to try and get something published because you're not going to be rolling in time there. So I, I wonder what was the beginning of your writing journey like, you know, while you're going to school? I started writing in, in, in college um, with a point of selling one story and then I would be a published writer. And then I would be a dilettante from then on and write a little story here, story there, and you know. Um, but they kept rejecting him, <laughs> like Pavlov's dogs, you know. Just here's a Wilson story, rejected. Um, and by the time, sorry, I just kept writing. I said, I'm just going to sell the one story, and you know. Um, I think Rap Man was 7,500 words. Um, you know, I, I wrote it in bits and pieces. You know, I wrote it in freehand, and then I typed it up on my Olympia Portable. And um, I, so I just, there's another one I sent it to John Campbell, figuring it's going to be um, rejected. And, uh, you know, then I got a check back. Yeah. So, um $350 or something like that, $362 or whatever, which in 
money is like 2500 really it's i'd be like, stoked to get that today <laughs> i was gonna say there's <laughs> no paying six cents a word on and the better markets yeah so um uh it was my first published because starling mystery stories accepted a story that campbell had rejected and uh that came out first and then a month or two later you know rat and, and that came out and uh, and then a month or two later uh rat man came out um but that first story i don't know uh it was called the cleaning machine which is a very exciting name but um it was pirated and uh which i didn't know at the time but years later I was at a signing and somebody came up with this, I think it was called Galaxy Mission or something like that. It was it was like a, a black and white, eerie, creepy type of magazine. And they said, would you sign this? I said, well, why? I don't have a story. And they said, yeah, you do. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't. He said, yeah, you do. He opened it up and there was this thing called The Machine by F. Paul Wilson. And that was the cleaning machine. And they had pirated it. It was the same company, but they had pirated it for this because it had something to do with mailing privileges if you had to have some pros in it. So I so I signed it. But yeah. You know, uh so I was oh, I didn't get paid for either one. Yeah, it's messed up, man. Sorry, Mystery Stories folded with the publication of the cleaning machine. Uh, I like to say there's no connection. And then it was pirated, and that was not paid for that either. So published twice, paid none. Oh my god! <laughs> Quite the start. But I, I, yeah, I, if Patrick didn't jump in, I was going to with yeah, the go uh, ahead. What, what you got paid for the uh, three hundred and whatever it was. I, mean, <laughs> I just sold a story last week for less than that <laughs> at, at professional rates. You know, so <laughs> boy, we're we're not going in the right direction here. <laughs> No, it's been it's been fifty years, and mm -hmm. yeah, but you know, it's it's just it's very hard to you know uh, make things work like like this. I mean, uh, you know, analog had Condé Nast behind them, you know, so they didn't have to make a huge profit, but uh, they did have to remain, you know. I mean, they're still, you know, they're still publishing, but, you know, different companies have been sold off a couple of times. Uh, but, you know, if, if you, you can't write stories, short stories for, for the money, you got to write it because you want to write it. And uh, the money is, is, is a nice land yap, but it's not, um, you know, it's not why you do it because you, you can't make a living writing short stories. <laughs> no, you can pay a bill every couple of months, which is nice. Yeah. Yes. Um, so let's, let's talk writing novels. I, you know, I know it wasn't your first, but I want to talk about Repairman Jack. Now, when you wrote, when you created this character, did you have any idea that this was going to be somebody you revisited over and over and over again? When I finished the tomb, I left him dying for a good reason because uh, I knew he was a series character, and I knew I didn't want to write a series. So, because um, I knew it would take over my career, and I had the touch already written in my head. I had Black Wind 
forming. Um, and so it was, I'm just saying, and I don't want to do this uh, at this point in my, my career. And so uh, I left him dying. And, and at that time, there was no internet. There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook. So, you know, people had to get in touch with me through the uh, publisher and or my agent well they got through me to me through the publisher and then some of the publishers sent it to my agent who sent it to me so it was a long time sometimes before i got the letter um but right away that you know my publisher you know berkeley wanted you know one another repairman jack i said no no i'm not doing that uh i'm going to do the touch um so but i'm trying to think i guess yeah, it was due to Roger Corman and his Concord films and their terrible script and the fact that they weren't going to make it. Yeah, you know, Fred Olden Ray stole the title of Tomb for one of his crappy pieces of crap movies. And um, so, you know, Roger Corman said, we don't have the title and we have a lot of the script. I'm not going to do it. But, you know, I would just, so in a last ditch effort, I wrote a script and um, I put all this action in it and everything. And, it would, you know, I sent it to them and they never even replied. Um, but the thing is, I had all this great stuff in there. Oh, my God. Um, and so I said, I got to protect it some way. So I wrote A Day in the Life with all the stuff I had put into the script that wasn't you know from the tomb all the new stuff so um and ed gorman was looking for uh a uh, story for stalkers and i said i got a repairman jackson give it to me <laughs> and so uh, i sent it to him and uh, so that that to me it copyrighted it it protected it um <clears throat> and then later I was a uh, guest of honor at the World Fantasy Convention, and they wanted a story for the program book from the guest of honor. And I said, and Phyllis Weinberg, uh, Bob Weinberg was was running the convention. And Phyllis was his, you know, his wife. She was a Repairman Jack fan. And she said, please make a Repairman Jack. So I did the last precaution. And so, you know, there were bits and pieces of Jack as we're going on, but it were, you know, it was no, no commitment until you know 1997 i guess when i needed i needed to get out of this this medical thriller contract because i was sick of them and um i did this high-tech thriller idea i said jack's perfect called it legacies and it sold like crazy and so they said do another repair on jack so i did one more i said i'll do one more i'll do conspiracies and I had such fun with conspiracies that I said, okay, I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm going to commit to a series. And so the thing I had feared in 1984 that he would take over my writing career happened. <laughs> so just How's official Twitter. How many books are you up to now? Um, geez, I don't know. Um, 24, maybe. I'm, I'm done. Basically, uh, I, I just don't have any more to add, really, to his uh, his opus, as it were. Um, I did 
I did the the last Christmas was a uh, um, uh, you know a plug in. I had an idea for the story and I and I plugged it into the timeline. Um, but you know, it just and I, I wanted to go out on a high note with Jack, um, and I think I did. And it's not uh, you know I just don't want to run them into the ground. I mean. Robert Parker Spencer was one of my favorite characters ever, but after 12 books, he just started repeating himself. And, you know, I just swore I would never do that. It's like um, Lee Chow with Jack Reacher. I, I know he's past 20 as well. Yeah, well, he now has his brother writing him. Uh, yeah, I told Lee I was, I was, uh, you know, stopping repair my jack and said, Why on earth would you do that? I said, Well, you know, I think you know, I peaked and I, you know, I, I want to go out of the peak. So, was it what was his Do you give advice actually? I'm assuming he did. No, you know, he, he just said, You know, why would you, you know, it wouldn't be something he would do. Um, but you know, he understood, he understood. Uh, Gave me a great blurb for the uh, the, the final books. That's uh, really cool. he's a sweet guy. He's a good guy. Yeah, I've heard him talking in interviews. He's, he seems just like really um, kind of low low talking, calm. Just really nice presence about him. He's very generous. You know, good person. So it's really cool. And thought, now, funny's not the right word, but that's all I could think about. But how? Uh, Tom Cruise. I saw the first Jack Reacher. I I wouldn't expect him to be Jack Reacher. Is all I would say about that. I liked it. I just did not expect Tom Cruise to portray him. No, I think they were good movies. They were um, fun. He just wasn't Jack Reacher. The new guy. No. Have you seen the new series? I no. I, I know it exists. But I, but I, I heard they got it a little closer this time. This guy is. He's imposing, like you know, you expect Reacher to be. He's a little bit beefier. Um, I've seen the picture of him. He definitely. I wouldn't want to piss him off. Him to be. I mean, this is a guy who spends his life on the road, you know, and the actor looks like someone who spends his life in the gym. But other than that, you know, it, it's like he is imposing, and uh, you know, the difference between my, you know my Jack, who preceded Reacher. And Reacher is that, you know, Reacher is much more confrontational. Whereas my guy is like, you know, let's you and him fight. Okay. So. That would be funny if your Jacks fought each other. <laughs> well, people have been suggesting it for years, but, you know, I, I, I don't want to go there. I'm just trying so, to think of the logistics of that. Sorry, Brennan, go ahead. <laughs> You go ahead and you think. Um, so, I mean, obviously I can understand, you know, not, you know, want, wanting to kind of mine mm. your ideas and not get tied to one character, but obviously you've written 24 books. Jack is special to you. So what, what is it about him, you know, that kind of made you decide to, you know, besides audience and publisher, uh, what, trying to think how to phrase this. Basically, just what 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 kind of uh, endears him to you? Um, 
I just I just like the fact that he's not a showboat. You know, his whole idea is to be invisible, um, which is sort of the way that my writing style is sort of, you know, transparent. You know, he wants to be able to fix these situations. He has this sense of justice. And he, and, and uh, but he also wants, you know, to earn a living. So you have to pay him. But the thing is, He's not going to bull in there and, you know, throw people out, you know, the window of the bar and so on. Um, he's just he's I like because he's he's much more cerebral. He thinks the situation through and says, how can I hoist him on his own petard? You know, he, he analyzed. I, I like him because he analyzes the situation and says, all right, now. How can we make this work where nobody's going to know that I had anything to do with this? But you know, how can I screw this guy? And you know, that's you know, you know that though I love working out those little you know fixes and uh, or big fixes. Uh, every once in a while, though, you know, he you, you do push him too far, and you know. Like in Crossroads, Crossroads, <laughs> Crossroads was so dark that I had to write, you know, a cozy mystery after that because <laughs> just to cleanse my palate. And because he, he, you know, Jack, you know, sort of went off the rails and, uh, you know, did some stuff that he doesn't usually do, but he, you know, you just pushed him, you know, he's one of those guys you just don't push too far. One one thing, one detail that really stuck out to me is just the, you know, you, you think of these like uh, action hero, you know, Alex Cross, J uh, Jack Reacher types, and they, they seem kind of like larger than life um, and, you know, just like specimens almost. Um, and one thing I, I liked about Repairman Jack is just the way he always gets in his rooftop exercises but damn it he doesn't want to and just you know that that just kind of small detail of just relatability that you know we can all look at this guy and be like oh man you know this guy's this guy's good at what he does and i wouldn't want to mess with him but i also understand him <laughs> well you know that's me because i'm I'm, I'm lazy as can be and <laughs> yeah uh i used to go and work out regularly and i hated it every minute of it but i knew it was good for my body and then you know i've gotten to the point now where i'm saying you know, fuck it <laughs> just, you know i've gotten this far you know so Maybe I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go down and do the recumbent bike a little, or I'll walk around the block or something. But, you know, um, and, and Jack's, you know, and Jack is, is is not a driven person in that sense, you know, in you know personal body perfection. He, but he knows he has to keep his reflexes, you know, tight, and he knows he has to, you know. Be in shape, but doesn't mean you like to win it. That's a good point. Again, relatable. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd like to switch gears and go to uh, 
interest of the two of ours, you're in your mind. I, I can't remember if Brennan likes this, but Lovecraft. Um, I got into him when I started to fall back in love with reading and my wife is responsible. That's responsible for that. So it was like Lovecraft and King were the two for me, in my adult, in my young adulthood, when I got back into reading and writing. Um, so I'll end my love for those guys there. And I want to pick up with yours. What got you, what got you into Lovecraft? Um, well, the thing is, um, I read The Thing on the Doorstep when I was 13. It was in a uh, collection called uh, Macabre. And it blew my mind. I said, what the hell is this? This this is the craziest thing I've ever read. Who's this guy Lovecraft and where can I find more of them? Um, but, you know... <clears throat> The, the person probably had the most effect on my writing is, is Matheson. Oh, um, okay. That cleaner sort of writing, mm. um, contemporary settings, and this vivid, vivid imagination. Um, Lovecraft really inf influenced the, the context of a lot of my writing. It, the his cosmic horror, um, the way. Yeah, I mean, Matheson really was affected by him, even though he probably didn't show it. But the fact that introducing the him, Lovecraft introduced materialism into horror. You know, he made the chain rattling ghost. Uh, moaning ghosts, uh, a thing of the past. Um, you know, there's no more, no Jacob Marley's in a Lovecraft story. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, Matheson, you know, picked that up, but Matheson really was not in, not into cosmic horror. I was into cosmic, cosmic horror because of Lovecraft, but I mixed the two of them. I mixed, you know, I, I took the 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 Lovecraft cosmic horror and the Matheson contemporary sensibility, and, you know, and put them together. So those are the, the two shoulders that I stand on. Um, I didn't. I can't say I did this consciously. I just happened to you know one. You know, one stuck in my brain, this this part, and one stuck in the right side of my brain, one stuck in the left side of my brain, and in the middle came out, you know, Wilson. So, uh, and when I got the, you know, the Grandmaster from the Horror Writers, uh, that's the, or Life Achievement, whatever, you know, Richard Matheson was in the audience, and, you know, I thanked him, and uh, I said I was standing on his shoulders. That's awesome. I, I love Matheson as well. Um, Ronald Kelly, a friend of Brennan and mine and uh, a returning guest often on the show. He is also a big Matheson fan. Um, Matheson and, and Bradbury, those two really, I mean, without them, you know, you, you could say that they're a continuation of, of Lovecraft, I think, in both of their works. There's some evidence of that, but without them, I think there's a lot of us that won't be formed. I don't think Stephen King would get a lot of what he has today either. So those are those are guys I love talking about. Is there 
Um, did, have you happened to re- read um, Be- the Beerless Warriors? I think it was uh, by Matheson, World War II no. novel. No, no, I, I I didn't read his uh, straighter fiction, you know, oh, okay. in time and stuff like that. But yeah. um, the three shock collections, um, uh, Third from the Sun, uh, Born a Man and Woman was one of the most wrenching. Uh, stories I've ever read Um, and uh, I did a a story called Faces which I realized later on was really the child in Born a Man and Woman grown up Uh, I hadn't done that consciously but when I look back I can say yeah subconsciously that's what I did so I owe a lot to Matheson that's really cool um Brennan, uh, I want you to take over because my segue is not smooth. So go ahead. Bro. Okay. <laughs> Let's move so, on. <laughs> so, you know, uh, Paul, you mentioned that you spent a lot of time in the 90s uh, writing medical thrillers, and then you had to uh, write 22 more Repairman Jack novels just to get away from that. Um, and that kind of times up nicely with, you know, the, a lot of people we've talked to will say that horror kind of died a slow, painful death in the 1990s. And I think that you could easily make the argument that in the early 2000s, it really kind of came back with a vengeance. So I was wondering if we could uh, have your take on the uh, early 2000s to modern times uh, resurgence of horror. Yeah, I know. I know. It, it took a long time coming back because it wasn't really called horror. Um, there was a lot of stuff sneaking in there uh, that was horror, but you know they they weren't calling it horror. Horror became a dirty word because you know, I mean, I I went into medical thrillers because like in nineteen was it nineteen eighty nine or so uh, I wrote Reborn. They shipped a huge number of copies, and then a huge number of copies came back. And then same with um, Reprisal and then Night World. And I said, okay, the sun is setting uh, on this. Um, I'm saying I had this idea for a medical thriller, actually a medical school thriller. Uh, I called it the Ingram. Um, That's a cool name. It was the name of the school. Hmm. and. Um, uh, I wrote it under a different name as Colin Andrews. And my agent said, I told my agent, I said, I want you to sell this as by Colin Andrews. First of all, because uh, other, you know, if it, they see my name, they'll think it's a horror novel. It's not. I want to judge just as it is. And the second thing is, I want a chance of being on the top shelf. Because I was tired of being on the bottom shelf. As a <laughs> so... Um, so he, t- so he said, I'm going to take it to Frankfurt. I'm going to try to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to test it out over there. So, you know, he calls me and he says, you know, the Italians have just offered 40 million lira for it. I said, I'm rich, right? He said, no, not really. <laughs> not with the exchange rate. Um, but he said, that's a good start. And then he created a freezing, a feeding frenzy in uh, Frankfurt. And so by the time I get over here, you know, 
the publishers were ravenous for it. And I wound up with my first seven-figure deal. So uh, quitting horror was a good thing for me. Um, I guess so. So, you know, and then I got a multi, you know, multi-medical thriller contract. And by the time I had done the third one, I was just saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm done with, you know, heroic internists. Um, and that's when I did Legacies and brought Jack back. Um, but, um, but Jack was mostly marketed as a thriller type of, of, of thing, even though we were definitely, definitely cosmic horror elements, you know, running through. Um, he had monsters. I brought back to Rakashi and stuff like that. I mean, it had all sorts of weird stuff going on. Um, I, you know, I really wasn't paying much attention to the horror market then because I, you know, I was doing young adult Jack novels in the early two uh, thousands. Um, I had done, you know, Midnight Mass and like 1990 or something and uh, the novella and then i did an extra novelette for al sar antonio's 9.99 and then marty greenberg you know wanted me to do another vampire thing so i did so i did these three vampire things they're all linked in the same world where it's a vampire apocalypse um and so Richard Chismore asked me, he said, you know, one of these things where he says, have you got anything? I said, well, you know, I've got, you know, this, these vampire things. I can, um, I can do that into a novel. You know, I got the start and I can, I can easily do it into a novel because I got, you know, a jumping off place. He said, we'll do it. We'll publish it. And so I happened to mention to David Hartwell, you know, that I was doing this vampire novel for um, Cemetery Dance. And he said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Said, we get first look at your next book. It's in your contract. I said, "Oh yeah, it is." <laughs> so I showed it to him. He said, "We want this." So Richard got to do the limited, and Tor did the um, uh, trade. So, so that you know that I was that was definitely horror. I mean, that's as as much horror as you can get. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and so. But otherwise, I wasn't paying that much attention to it because, you know, I was, you know, I was involved with Repairman Jack. You know, he had to deliver a novel every fall. And so oh my God. Oh my God. So, you're, you're, you're plugging away during the year. Um, and so, uh, so I, I can't say I was keeping track. Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I was really, you know, in here. I don't know how you wouldn't be. Otherwise, how do you keep up with that, man? Like one book, one book a year, but like, I'm sure there's other, that's not all you're doing. I'm sure. Well, I was doing two when I was doing the uh, young adult. Okay. Mm. But they were 60, they were like 65,000 words. So they weren't, you know, uh, like a full 110,000 word. You know, they were like half the length of a, of a adult novel, but you know, it still had the, crank it out you know during, and but they were fun i mean they, they were I, I i don't i can't say i felt stressed i just felt absolutely you know 
gifted to be able to 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 do that. Just you know, it was, it was a gift. It's a sweet gig. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd like to jump ahead to StokeCon. I know you you mentioned uh, off here that you're heading there. Um, it's in uh, Colorado this year, right? Mm. Denver. Yeah. Okay. Denver. Um, what, what would someone that hasn't been there, uh, me, Brennan or any other listener, what, what's, what is StokerCon like? What, what's the, uh, attraction to that convention? Well, you know, it's, it's usually a who's who of horror. Um, you won't see Stephen King there. Uh, you used to see Peter Straub, but you know, Pete's infirm now, so he won't be going. Um, but you know, uh, a lot of times, you know, I, I am hoping the Brits come back, uh, because they have been able to come to U.S. conventions because of COVID, but now that's all opened up. So I'm hoping Steve Jones, uh, you know, and 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 his gang show up. Hmm. Um, uh, hope, hopefully Michael Marshall Smith. He's he doesn't have too far to come from you know Santa Barbara, and um, uh, you know it, it'll be you know Brian Keane and and there's so many other you know Tom Montreoni and I will be there. Uh, you know just about anybody who's anybody. Should be there. I know Robert McCammon was there a few years ago too. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, cool. I don't know if he'll. You know, I don't know if he'll be there this year. Um, but you know, uh, I've known him for you know forever. You know, basically, it's, it's a family, and um, you can come in there and and uh, you know, it's it's very accepting. You know, it's not clicky. At all. I mean, you, you hang around the bar and you can come up to anybody you want and just, you know, say, say, hi, I like your work and get into a conversation with them. It's not, you know, uh, it's not standoffish at all. You know, yeah, that's really cool. We've all been there. Um, you know, I remember going to conventions and, you know, with great trepidations going up to Theodore Sturgeon said, would you find my book? <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's just, um, yeah, very few are, you know, every once in a while, there's an asshole. But, you know, right now, they're few and far between. That's good. <laughs> Robert McCammon, man, I wish that he would, I really wish that he would be a little bit more open social on social media i know hunter goatley's the guy that runs this page uh i'm, I'm not really asking you a question i guess because i'm not asking you to speak for him but I'm, I'm just throwing that out there i wish that he would talk i'd love to know what he's thinking i mean he's got so many wonderful books i've noticed that with some authors um yeah you know, I, I i don't mind being out there but some people you know, they, they don't yeah rick in person is 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 a very gregarious guy um, so, but I, I just don't think he liked maybe I, I, I can't speak for him, but I guess he doesn't like to interact. You know, I mean, let's face it. Twitter can be a nasty place. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, there are, you know, freaking psychos 
uh, that seem to inhabit the place. And you say something wrong, and all the NPCs come out with their little program responses. And it's, you know, it's, it's disgusting. I, I, I really hate it. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm very circumspect in, 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 in what I say out there. Man, I've, I've had some people go at me and at a convention, I know one of them was like five feet away. I didn't give a shit. I don't care. I don't know that person that like they're not a friend and didn't say anything to my face. And that's how I assume most of them are. It's just they they're behind oh, sure. the keyboard. You're very, you're very, you're, yeah, you're very brave at the keyboard. It's um, crazy. It's crazy. I mean, like the tech, I say that I've said this a few times, but like the technology we have, come on, can't we be smart enough to be like, how can we better ourselves instead of mm-hmm. go after each other every damn day? <laughs> you're an idealist. Yeah, I'm a, <laughs> I, I told you from the beginning, I got dumbass brain. Brennan, take over. I, I just think that, you know, you and, you know, just to because we're talking about him, somebody like Robert McCam and, you know, when you were writing your your initial books, you didn't have to have a social media presence. You know, there is no social media. Uh, and yeah. you guys did you you guys did wonderful for yourselves. Um, so I could imagine the trepidation of not wanting to get involved with it because to a degree, you don't need to. Uh, unfortunately, a newer author doesn't really have that. You almost, I mean, there there are contracts nowadays where uh, publishers won't sign you for a book if you don't have a social media presence. Uh, there are some agents who won't look at your book if you don't have a certain number of followers. Um, it's all kind of absurd uh, if you think too long and hard about it. Now, I mean, I've always wanted to engage with my readers. I even put a post office box in the back of, I think it was Reprisal or Reborn. Um, and, you know, that's when I started getting letters directly from the readers rather than having to go through the publisher. And then I started, that's when I started my newsletter because then I accumulated all these names and I would send them a newsletter. So, um, by mail, you know, stamp every one of them, and you know, um, but uh, it was just instinct on my part, you know, and just that I, I, I like engaging, you know, with readers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that just me, um, but I, I don't think, uh, I don't think you know, being. Oh, topical is necessarily uh, wise or even even wanted. I mean, yeah, Stephen King's you know out there regurgitating uh, MSNBC. I mean, really, virtue signaling. I'm not disagreeing. I'm like, <laughs> what does he have to virtue signal for? You know, <laughs> I don't even think he needs a social media. He doesn't, man. He's like the most successful author ever. Yes. Yeah, he'll sell some books without it. Yeah. So, I mean, but the thing is, if you go, you know, I, I you know, I, I just unfollow people because, you know, they're not saying anything. They're not surprising me. <laughs> you know, I just heard that on CNN 
I don't need to hear from you. You know, yeah, yeah. Can I have an original thought, please? <laughs> plus, plus, the thing is, is, I don't think a lot of them probably will remember what they were so mad about two days ago because they're mad about something else. Yeah. I got friends like that, and I just, uh, <clears throat> I am, I unfollow them or mute them. I just can't. Ugh, it's too much, man. I, I do applaud you, Paul, though, for sorry, Pat, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I, I do applaud you for keeping that social media presence in order to engage with readers. I because I think that is, you know, we're we're talking about the negatives of social media, and that's such a positive yeah. uh, is to be able to, you know, like you said, I I it it really struck me when you said you were able to thank Richard Matheson uh for his influence on you. To be able to, you know, pick up my phone right now and tell a writer I admire that a piece of their work really struck me um, and, you know, just have that dialogue, have that conversation. And I mean, even to the point where we were able to speak with uh, Peter Straub last year, and it was because we interacted him with him on social media and invited him on. Uh, otherwise, that episode probably never happens. Uh, so I, I, I think it is really a benefit to it to be able to have that engagement with authors whose work is very meaningful to you. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had had it, you know. <laughs> I wish I could have engaged with Bradbury. And uh, I mean, I never emulated Bradbury, but, you know, he was certainly a nice guy. Um, or Matheson or Bob Block. I mean, Bob Block. Bob Block used to send me postcards all the time. I mean, that was how he uh, communicated was with postcards. Um, he was he was a great guy. But uh, and this is all before social media. You know, where the, the immediacy is 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 gone. I mean, I, I had done I did an article in uh, Science Fiction Review where I I you know I bemoaned. The title was "Look What They've Done to My Song Ma," and it was about you know my reactions to the movie at the Keep, <laughs> and you know, and Bob Block you know wrote me a postcard and said, "Yeah, well that's that's what they did to your book. Imagine when they do the same thing to your screenplay." <laughs> so, <laughs> in all fairness, at least they got Psycho right, or at least yeah, to me. I don't did. know. I don't know how he feels about it. Oh, I mean, it made his career. It made him from a, you know, a, a mid-list author, uh, screenwriter to, you know, a household name. And you know what? Robert, Robert Psycho Block. Remember it. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing could be said about Stephen King. Uh, if it wasn't for Carrie, Brian De Palmer's Carrie. I'm willing to bet that that, that single thing... Mm accelerated his career tremendously because the movie the movie just does it it captures a whole new audience well, yes and what what happens when you have a successful movie is that everybody says what else you got and he had sales lot which was done into a tv miniseries mini yep and then that was a big hit and all of a sudden you know, there's a stand and there's, you know, so blah, 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 blah. So, and, and he was, the horror was, 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 was rising. And, you know, he was the most recognizable person in the field at that time. Mm. Laddie, 
and uh, couldn't follow up. And um, Ira Loving, you know, really couldn't follow up. But, you know, Steve was cranking them out. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. You know, you want material? Here you go. And so he was he was the, the movie producer's dream. And, uh, you know, and a lot of his stuff is, is so visual that, you know, it just uh, the adaptations were, you know, you know and, then, and then you got Kubrick doing your movie, even though he did a lousy movie. It's, it's Kubrick. still Kubrick, yeah. It's Kubrick. <laughs> I mean, and that and that gives you the you know imprimatur, of, and it was successful. It, it sold a lot of tickets, even though he hated it. I hated it, um, but it sold a lot of tickets, and that that's all that matters in Hollywood, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, if the keep had been successful, you know, uh, I, I'd be in a different a different place now. But you know, it was such a flop. It lasted two weeks. It lost, you know, a ton of money. Damn and, you, Michael uh, Mann. Hmm? Said damn and, you, know, Michael Mann. Well, yeah, well, Michael Mann had to go to had to go to TV, which was, you know, well, but lucky for him, he uh you know, he turned that around and put it into his advantage. I mean, mm-hmm. let's let's face it, uh the guy's got a great visual sense. I mean, there, there's no question about that. Um, and Miami Vice was you know, beautiful to look at, just like the keep was beautiful to look at. Yeah. But Miami Vice actually made sense. But- <laughs> 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 All right. Now we're going to jump into the what are you reading portion of the episode. So, uh, Paul, what are you currently reading? What am I reading? Jeez. Um, I'm reading... Uh, Sean M. McGuire's is a middle group. See, I oh geez, I um, I read on a Kindle three, and it doesn't have the title on the top. You know, on the top of each page, <laughs> you, get, you get one. to see it at the beginning, and that's it. Yes, I like it because the battery lasts forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I really like Sean M. McGuire's writing. Um, she's got such an imagination, and her her lost children series is wonderful. Um, this I'm just maybe twenty percent into, so uh, I can't say if it's wonderful yet. But um, uh, I really like her stuff. Um, Martha Wells, her Murderbot Diaries. Hmm. God, if you haven't read those, you've got to get them. They are science fiction, but they are wonderful. Murder, um, murder. Did you say murder bot? Murder bot. Murder bot diaries. That's a cool name. Um, and Scalzi's last trilogy. Um, again, <laughs> don't ask me. Don't ask me their name. Um, but his last trilogy was was really good. I really liked it. Um, uh, who else have I read recently? Um, I mean, I've read some people you've never heard of because it's their first novel, and they sent it to me. So, um, uh, well, you know, here I just I just finished this. It's called Terror Peak. It's got a horrible cover, really stupid cover, but it's really. <laughs> 
It's good. It's a good. It's a good. Adventure you are not park. incorrect. Don't judge it by its cover. <laughs> yeah, no, don't, uh, that's... don't judge it by its cover. Uh, yeah, it's not a great cover. Who else have I read a mission that I really like? You know, that would be it, a great blurb by you. Stupid cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. Look at me. Come on. The mountain's got. Oh, he's bringing it back. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> really? What do you It's got to be the front cover blurb, too. You can't put that inside. Oh, God. <laughs> right on the, the front uh, cover. Yeah, stupid cover. I'm coming, I'm coming up with a good blurb for him. Yeah, you know, <laughs> okay. stupid will not be be it. But now, now if the wrong really? person sees us on social media, fuck these guys. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, Brennan, what are you? Reading? We're in trouble. <laughs> um, you know what? Just this afternoon, I I finished reading uh, Clickers Two oh, by no, Brian yeah. Keene and JF Gonzalez, and the best uh, blurb. Uh, well, first of all, it's a cool color cover. Yeah. Uh, the best the best thing I can say about it is I immediately picked up three and started that. So that's that's what I'm currently reading is Clickers Three, Dagon Rising. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, they, they, there's there's a great thing. You know, I just I just went to the next book because I couldn't yeah. wait. Well, and you know, I I had um I, I've been reading I, I've been trying to work through Brian Keene's catalog this year, which is no small feat. Uh, I had I had picked up uh, Clickers by um, JF Gonzalez and I think it's Mark Williams, and it was it was fine. Um, it's entertaining. It's it's big old crabs come and tear people apart. Cool. I'm I'm down for it. But the way that Keen and Gonzalez work together versus the original two authors, it's 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 next level. You know, there's a huge huge progression between the first one and the second one, and I just I tore through it. Um, and you know, I'm already a couple chapters into three and it's got that same kinship that those two share. They knew how to write together. Like no question. Well, you know, you know Brian, Brian always has a great narrative sense mm-hmm. and, um, he's taken over the boot camp from Tom Monteoni and I uh, read that. And, uh, I, I think he and Mary will do a great job because, you know, First of all, he's a very organized guy. Hmm. Second of all, you know, he's very articulate about, you know, writing and stuff. And he's he's been in and out of the boot camp, you know, helping us and, uh, uh, you know, talking to people and so on. So he knows the whole procedure. And we've had tremendous success for, with the boot camp. And hmm. just Tom and I, we, you know, we were just down there. In in February, and you know, I you know, I looked at Tom and said, you know, I think this might be my last. He said, you know what, I think it might be mine too. Let's <laughs> let's pass it on. And then Brian showed up and said, "There's the guy. <laughs> He'll take care of it." He, he didn't said, even want it. You just gave it to him. <laughs> I mean, you know, we you know, we said, "Would you would you be interested? You know, would, would you ta- would would you take over?" He said, "I'd love to." So that's, that's really cool. How much? How much is that? Hmm? Do you know how much it costs to go there? No. Um, Tom is in charge of all that stuff. You know, I'm I'm a hireling, uh, but I've been there since day one. So that's what I consider it mine, too. But, you know, he runs all, all the things. I, I it, It's, uh, I have no idea what, what he charges, but it should be on the website. Yeah. You know? Okay. That's in uh, PA, right? No, it's in, uh, it's been in Baltimore. Oh, it's always um, a thousand Pennsylvania. 
he might uh, Brian might move it up to Hunt Valley mm. uh, for oh. you know. Uh, uh, I mean, we we found a, a good uh, cheap hotel in 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 Baltimore, so that you know people didn't have to spend too much money to stay there. Um, but uh, it, it's 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 been taken over by Comfort Suites and it's under you know they're, they're renovating everything it's a mess right now so mm-hmm. i don't know what brian's gonna do but you know something <laughs> that's his problem now yeah so i am reading uh anybody home by michael j sidlinger it's it's a home invasion book but um it's basically uh, funny we're talking about passing things on to the next generation <clears throat> it's seasoned people that break into homes and there's younger guys that are taught it uh, and they're, <clears throat> excuse me, they're recording uh, pretty much all of this. And I, I just dove into this. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, ugh, my turn. Uh, <laughs> it's really cool. I like it a lot. Um, it's just a smooth read. Uh, and there's a lot of people that I, their opinion um weighs heavy on like if i were to open up to a new author and uh michael's a new author for me and i like it clash books is a publisher that has a lot of neat neat books are always different they're always um weird in a good way in my opinion so worth checking out if if you're into that sort of thing brent take over i I need a drink (laughs) the the, the home invasion is sort of a subgenre yeah especially movies uh, have you seen your next? I haven't seen that yet, but it looks good. No. Oh, it's, it's older. I think it's like ten, might be ten years old by now. But there's such a nice twist in it. That, you know, it's and yeah, you know, uh, there's a death by food processor that I really love. That's a cool. That'd be a cool title. Uh, where can people follow you? I'm sorry. Uh, where, sorry, where can people follow you? Oh, uh, Um I have a monthly newsletter, which I haven't put out yet this month because I went to AuthorCon. You know, this, oh, how was that? Oh, that was great. That was great. Um, it's, uh, it's amazing how many uh, self-published authors are out there, and they are doing well. Yeah. It's, really, it's really good. Um, uh, Twitter, I'm uh, at F. Paul Wilson, and I think I'm the real F. Paul Wilson on on Facebook. I had to switch from my old thing. And it was, you know, you know, Facebook is so screwed up. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, I think I'm the real F. Paul Wilson on Facebook, so follow me there. I, I don't post a whole lot. Um, when I find something interesting, I'll post it. And sometimes when I have a new book, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll annoy the hell out of you for a while. <laughs> but basically, uh, uh, I follow other people and, you know, and, and check them out. Uh, so. Nice. Um, do you have any final thoughts? No. <laughs> <laughs> Friend, my, head is, my head is empty. I'm going to. I've been. I've been DVRing uh, BattleBots. 
um, <laughs> because that's one of my guilty pleasures is watching these little machines beat the crap out of each other. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I, I, I love the people who, who do this. I mean, uh, my favorite is Witch Doctor, which, um, and one of the, you know, one of their chief designers, she, she, she does prosthetic limbs, you know, for you know, all the, so she knows all the mechanical stuff and all that kind of thing. And uh, so I, she, she puts that, I guess, into, into her little, little robot. And uh, they've been winning stuff where they shouldn't win. So, so I've been following them. But um, it's, uh, that's one of my guilty pleasures. The other one is, you know, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dies, where I, <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I, I look at food porn. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Guy Fieri is awesome. Uh, Brent, Brent, any final thoughts? No, I'm just thinking about Guy Fieri now. I'll bet he's eating something so delicious right now. <laughs> yeah, whenever <laughs> I've been to a few restaurants, I had him visit, and whenever mm. it says like this is his choice, wherever it's however it's worded, I'm like, yeah, I'm getting that. I want to try that. <laughs> I mean, I have seen in Providence where it was like something. <laughs> it was like uh, spaghetti meatballs, but he approved of it. So I'm like, I'm gonna try that. <laughs> no matter that. what it is, it's gonna, it's gonna be out of bounds. Yeah. Um. So my final thoughts are, uh, Paul, we really appreciate you spending Thursday night with us. Really appreciate your time um, to have you know, an author. Fun. You guys are fun to talk to. <laughs> that's that's what we always hope for. Yeah. Uh, that you're not going to be like, oh, my gosh, when are they going to let me go? Um, but, oh, wait, you know, we always appreciate we have We have thunderstorm outside now. All of a sudden here. In, <laughs> well, that's ominous. Here at the Jersey Shore. Yep. Well, do you do you have it too? It's not yeah, in New it's, Jersey, it's, so it's foreign down hard, man. I Where thought about you. Um, Patrick, I'm in uh, Atlanta County. Um, oh, so you're uh, south of me. I'm in uh, Monmouth. Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you when we're done recording with town. I just, you know, you never know what kind of person's listening. So. <laughs> oh, Brennan, I thought you were gonna pick up. Okay, so that was not the pause. <laughs> Uh, my final thoughts are it was really fun talking to you, Paul. Um, and I just appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want me to say? <laughs> no, nothing in particular. <laughs> uh, next step. My God, my throat is so dry. Allergies are killing me. Uh, next episode is 143 with the co-founder of Deathside Press, Patrick C. Harrison III. Stay tuned for that. And listeners, as always, you have many choices of podcasts. Thank you for picking up. Bye.